Verse 1, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made both or by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities in Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. This is God's Word, and thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again to be in your house together, brothers and sisters in Christ, but under the sound of your teaching as we have your Word open in our laps. Lord, would you bless what is said, and Lord, would you help this church's pastor, and would these words be from you and not from him? And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity, the time, and the honor to sit at your feet. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, this passage, these seven verses that we just read, follows Paul and Bartimus to one of the furthest stops on their first missionary journey. Uh, The order of the last three are Iconium, then Lystra, then Derbe. We read those three. We don't get into the last two until the next paragraph, which will be next week. But the rest of the chapter involves revisiting each of the stops on their return home to Antioch, where they were sent out in the beginning of chapter 13. So two chapters covers that whole first missionary journey. And on their way home, they work their way backwards, stopping at each of those churches to check in. The first seven verses, what we just read, document the missionaries' whereabouts along with a brief account of what went on in Iconium, but with fewer details than other passages. This is about as skinny of a report on a missionary journey's church uh, that we're going to find. And it probably would be easy, if not expedient, to just pass right along, group this in with the next paragraph, Hope it doesn't take too long to do them both and keep trucking next week. But I think there's something here. You'll have to be the judge of that. You're smart people. You can think for yourselves. But then again, what we're going to look at and and remembering all the time, we have to remind ourselves of this or we'll forget. Every single biblical author, including Luke, is selective in what he's including There's so much they could write about, but there's only so much they can write about. So when we get to one of the stops that has fewer details than the rest, you might think, well, it's not as important. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe the things that he wants to write about Iconium, he doesn't have enough room because he's got to talk about a problem in another one. He doesn't give us his editorial notes and the basis for why he did this like John did when he told us exactly why he wrote what he wrote and why. Um, But in this regard, what we're going to do with these seven verses, at least this is is, uh, the idea, to go back and review this report 
I think we're going to see that it is very typical of all the other reports, just shorter. So why would we spend a whole sermon on something that's ordinary and typical? Because I think there's something there. If, if, if this church is listed only to share that it's like all the rest of them, then maybe that's what Luke's trying to say. If you're paying attention, all these churches on all these stops are typical of each other. There's certain things that always happen. And if that's the case, then maybe we're not talking about description here, but prescription. This is the way all churches should look, at least in these handful of of ways. And I think what we'll do as we work our way through it is ask ourselves if we're as typical as these churches are typical. It's not a fun word. Don't know if you used it this past week, but a lot of times when people use the word typical, it's in response to something someone does, and it's got a period behind it. It's just one word. Hmm. Maybe starts a separate sentence with a period, and then typical. You ever heard anybody do that? Hmm. They add maybe a modifier. That's typical. What they think is that you're so predictable that they can expect what's going to happen. And then once you've done it, then they say, yeah, I knew what was going to happen. That's typical. Well, there's more to that word than just using it in that snarky kind of a way. Um, To be a full-service sermon here, I've got your definition from the Google. Typical. To be typical is to be of a type, meaning that a person or thing has the same characteristics of everyone or everything else in that particular group. And then they give an example sentence, like a typical student trying to talk the teacher out of giving homework over break. In this regard, I would be a typical student. I don't want any homework over break. Break is for break. If it's a break, you don't have to do homework. If we're going to give homework over the break, call it something else, like break plus some hard work like at school that you're really not breaking from. (laughs) Right? So let's see if this stop, Iconium is the geographical location, is typical of the other churches, and we'll have to, as we study through, see if they're typical as we move along. So we're going to look at the first seven verses as one more reminder of the typical ministry composition in the early churches we see in the book of Acts. And by the way, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I got some questions about it. I thought I'd mention it again, but uh, particularly, this is the location. It's Iconium, where that description of Paul the Apostle and his his physical appearance comes up in extra biblical literature. This is 2nd century. It's not the Bible, so we can't really say that this is true. It probably is, but not like the Bible is. Here's what the man looked like, for whatever it's worth. A man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs. So he's short, he's bald, and he's bow-legged. Goes on, in a good state of body, which is a way of saying he was built well. He should have been because people like to pick fights with this guy. At least maybe that would make him think twice. But the best part's now. With eyebrows meeting, that's never good. (laughs) That needs fixing. And a nose somewhat hooked. And that was in a time where you couldn't fix such things for any amount of money. Um, 
I thought that this was great because here's this man who goes into places, turns the world upside down, and he says, I didn't come to you with this, that, or the other. And looks were not part of the package either. Um, second century extra biblical source, not the Bible, but interesting nonetheless. Here's the description of the man, and here's what happens in verse 1. Now at Iconium, they, including Paul, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. That's a great introductory verse. What they're doing is working. So the first, there's three of these. The apostles' strategy was typical. And in a moment, we'll look at the city's response as typical. And then we'll close with the church's resolve was typical. But for this first one, they had a strategy. The apostles did. And it's the same wherever we've seen them, except for a couple of outlying situations. Whenever we look at Peter or Stephen or Paul, all chose to do most of their teaching in the synagogue, speaking largely to Jewish people. And we discussed how there's a reason for this. The reason was because it's a ready-made audience. It was an easy button if one was available to them. They didn't believe that Jesus was their Messiah, but they did believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They did believe that the prophets prophesied a Messiah. They just missed the fact that it was Jesus. So really, they agree on everything but one thing. So start with that group rather than a group that knows nothing of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're starting from scratch. That was their mode of operation until they get to the places where there are no synagogues. And then they do something different. But what they're doing, even though we see other methods, uh, you've got uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch come to mind, if you remember that, or Peter in the house of Cornelius. Neither of those are synagogues. But the pattern is similar. They're stepping through the open door afforded to them. That's what going to the synagogue. It's the same thing. Wherever the low-hanging fruit is, go pick the low-hanging fruit and then work your way higher. If we're going to get the gospel out, we go to where they're listening. If they're not listening, we go somewhere else where they are listening. Even Jesus did that, taught his disciples to knock the dust off their shoes when they left a certain area. By the time we got to the end of this, they're going to be threatened with their lives, and they leave altogether. Before that, they put up with quite a bit of difficulty. But they start with a strategy, and the strategy is go for the open door. Peter going to the Jews made sense because it was an open door. Philip going to the Samaritans made sense, open door. Paul going to the Gentiles made sense. He was Jewish, but he was trained uh, by Greeks. So the culture, the arts, all of those things he, he understood. It makes sense. It's an open door. So if we're going to chart through these and the other two, not so much point two, but point number three, is Wake Chapel typical of the early church in the ways we should be typical? We could ask ourselves, what's working for us? Because it, it, it doesn't always stay that way. Certain things and programs work for a while and then they don't work. The Bible always works. But the method by which you preach the gospel can change used to be that bus ministry was where it's at. You'd, have, you'd see buses all over the place on Sunday mornings with churches' names on the side of them. And then it got to where they didn't work anymore. And then uh, about 
six, seven years ago, um, we started taking children from a neighborhood to the tabernacle, the ministry I was at before. And we ran out of people's vans. Then we ran out of church vans. Then we had someone give us a bus. (laughs) And we used the bus to go get the kids and bring them to Awana, of all things. It was working. Again, it didn't work. It did work before. And these things will change. What's working for Wake Chapel right now as far as an open door for the gospel? Awana's working. It's working very well. There was a time where Awana didn't work, but that was in the middle. When I was a kid, Awana was was wide open. I had the uniform, the neckerchief, the little plastic Indian head. Any of you ever have the plastic Indian head? None of you had the plastic in. It was wide open and none of you were a part of it. Maybe it was a regional thing, but we'd play the Olympics all over the place. We would go drive as far as Shenandoah to whoop the tar out of another church in Jesus' name. Uh, then we'd invite them to our place and whip the tar out of them in Jesus' name. But it worked. Well, it's working again because there was a time where Awana started laying off its missionaries. We had a number of them we supported, and we got letters when they had to go somewhere else. And it was where it was just, what in the world is happening? What's wrong with Awana? Now Awana's working again. Uh, Good luck trying to order books these days. Some of it's supply and demand problems, but a lot of it's just because Awana seems to be working. Last week, we turned away two kids because we don't have enough volunteers to sit and listen to them say their verses. Now, is that a bad thing? Does it shock anyone? Not necessarily. We'll get to this in a minute, but Jesus said there's always a shortage of laborers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to bring laborers, right? If, if the disciples needed to hear that, are we better than the disciples? No, we need to hear it too. And It's always a capacity planning type thing. As a church grows, sometimes some of its ministries will pull and stretch in different ways. And the thing you never want to do is just give more to do from your faithful who've always been faithful. It's to grow up new volunteers who have a passion to walk through open doors, right? Another thing that's working at Wake Chapel is Vacation Bible School. We have waiting lists for that in the summer. And one of the strange things about it, even in the cultural climate we have where the, the, the culture itself is trying to figure out whether or not the church is good or not. used to be. Everyone loved the idea of a church in a, in a community. Now it may be more like a liability. Weird people who believe weird things that we don't believe anymore But for some reason, parents are still willing to trust the church with their children for vacation Bible school, if only as a pretext for daycare. But that's an open door, isn't it? You got little kids in your building, and everybody knows it's vacation Bible school. Tell them the gospel a bunch every night until they don't come anymore. And then if you can, do it again. But the reason why we have a waiting list is because we're limited by our volunteer force. It'll always be that way. And there's an appropriate number of children versus adults, which is wise in order to make sure they don't overrun you. 
I've never heard of a church-wide children's mutiny against a vacation Bible school, but we'll make sure that that never happens. These things are working. And even in John 4, when the disciples come back from town getting things that Jesus has been talking to the woman at the well, when she'd gone into the town and started bringing the people out, Jesus said, look at the field. It's white unto harvest. It's ready. There's your door, boys. Go for it. So the church has always been praying, and the word earnestly is there, for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers to work, to walk through open doors. Now, no one else is going to do it. There's no other entity but the church who has the gospel who will give grace and people will be saved. Nobody, if the church doesn't do it, it won't get done. All right, that was the apostles' strategy. Second is the city's response. It's also typical. Look at what it says. End of verse 1, last little phrase. A great number of both Jews and Greeks believed, verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. You skip down to verse 4. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Across the board, this was the case and is typical of all the other places we've seen. And I think it's typical of the city's response today. Not the city of Fuquay, Verena, but the city in that the unsaved around the churches, in the, it's always been the same. Some believe and some don't. Um, topic comes up, Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. Some folks will say, uh, let's hear it. Others will say, that's ridiculous, if not absurd. It's always been that way, always will be that way. That will always be typical because Jesus said that's the way it'll go. They hated me, they'll hate you. But he also prayed to the Lord of those that he was going to give through this word. So he's also told us there will be those that believe and there will be those that don't. And if it's typical to the book we've been reading, if we went all the way back to chapter 4, when these men started preaching, the leaders were greatly annoyed there were arrests. They spent the night in jail, though many believed. Chapter 5, the Jews dared not join them because they were afraid. They don't want to put their lot in with these Christian folks. But believers were added. Now they're up to 5,000 people. Chapter 6, many believed, but then Stephen stoned. Some like it, some don't. Chapter 9, speaking boldly, there were many looking to kill them. Chapter 13, that was the last few weeks. The whole town came out to hear Paul. But then the Jews drove them out of the district, and now in chapter 14, it's put as clearly as it's been put yet. Some received the word, and some rejected it, to the point that Luke tells us the people were divided. If you had a Greek New Testament, you know what that word divided is? Schizo. Anybody ever been called a schizo? Nobody is ever called a schizophrenic because that's a real disease and it's bad. It's a divided mind. But some people who act like that may incur the ugly word, schizo. It just means, we also use that for the schism when a church splits. Church history, the great schism was between the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. 
talk about that in membership class. But it's a, a division, a tearing apart. And that's what's going on here. They're divided. And then if you notice that uh, along the way, the words spoke in such a way are, are used there that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, for those who preach or teach regularly, that is, that's a point of interest. should be interesting. What do you mean such a way? Whatever the such a way was, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. I'd like to know what such a way is where people believe at the sound of the gospel. Seems to suggest something to do with the delivery of the message, not only the what was said, but the way that it was said, because they spoke, that's the truth, but in such a way. Of course, there's speculation across the spectrum as to what Luke might have meant by this, and a lot of people like to guess and speculate. But what's cool about your Bible is that there's these things called cross-references where you can look at one place and interpret what is said and confusing in another place. I'll give you an example. He's talking about Paul and his teaching, right? Well, if we were to go to 1 Corinthians 2, Paul tells us exactly the, such a way that he always taught and wherever he went. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, that's what he was doing, with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. How many of you would say that that, that's good credentials for a, 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 a speaker, an orator? Well, that's the truth. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That was the risk he took. I'm going to strip everything from my gospel preaching that you might latch on to as being special or worthy or exciting or entertaining, such that at the end of the day, no one's faith is going to be built on that stuff but on the actual gospel itself because that's all I'm ever going to talk about. I've been in churches where a guy was faithfully preaching and you'd hear folks say, does he ever do anything except invite people to Jesus? And I would say, is he qualified and called to do anything else? What would you rather him do? And when you got to heaven, would you not have to take all that back? Don't we wish he did that because eternity is going to be based on here now, which is temporary. I think so. So whatever it was, it wasn't his eloquence. Whatever it was, it wasn't his logic. Paul was courageous. There's no doubt about that. But he says of himself, he was weak, fearful, and trembling. And the key was in verse 4, where it was not plausible words of wisdom, but the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So if people believe when a man preaches, that's why they believe, because of the Spirit's power. That's what makes preaching prevail, what makes it authoritative, definite, without apology. It doesn't start with eloquence or persuasive use of log logic or ways with words or clever insight, charisma, presence, blah, blah, blah. It starts with weakness, fear, and trembling and ends with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and the power of God, if it's the good stuff. 
And this was the good stuff because many Jews and Gentiles believed. I believe, though it's not said anywhere in Scripture, that it's a sin to bore people in a sermon. And I watched a lot of men sin, according to that definition. The reason why it's a sin is because the Bible's not boring, it's very exciting. Um, If anyone would give it the time of day, they'd agree there's no other piece of literature like this on the planet. It's full of adventure. In fact, ever wonder why no one ever made a, a, a film about the whole thing? Because they don't have ratings that go for that severe worth of thing. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that R would catch some of the stuff that's in here. That's why you have to be careful the way you teach through this. I mean, it's got it all, right? It's not boring. But people who are used to entertainment and who don't know this book would look at it and say, that's boring. Because they don't know what it is. So you have to preach accounting for the person who's grown up in church and the person who's very new to it. And be sensitive about bringing them all in on the things that maybe a lot of the people know, but it takes some time to learn. None of us ever grasp the gospel in one swing. It's, it's quite a reach. Look at verse uh, 3, and we'll get to point number 3. The church's resolve was typical. Not just their, their strategy. That's the same throughout. It should be ours, too. Walk through the open door. And the second one, the city's always going to some of them will believe, and in the city, some of them will not believe. And what we'll look at here, those that don't believe will usually turn the heat up and make that gospel preaching difficult. So the church's resolve was typical. They rolled with it. Verse 3, So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace. That's everything. That's what we pray for when we open our Bibles and start teaching and preaching, that the word would get its witness. It's a problem with preaching that doesn't have much word in it. There's not a lot of opportunity for the Spirit to bear witness to the actual word. There's not a lot of word there. But that's what happened. That's what they did when they walked through those open doors. They would speak boldly, And then the Holy Spirit would bear witness to the word of his grace. And then we don't see this happen much. I believe sometimes it still takes place. But on the frontier where the gospel hasn't been heard, perhaps, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands, only for the purpose of saying this is different and it's legit. So the reason for the long stay, this is great. I mean, if you look at it, in your Bibles, does verse 3 come after verse 2? That's typical if it does. (laughs) Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 3, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. And the gymnastics that some of the scholars want to do to say that was an inversion, it should be the other way around. I don't believe it for a minute. They stayed because of the difficulty, not because of the success. And then when it looked like they were going to get killed, which means missionary journey over, okay, well, then they're not listening. We'll find somebody who will, and they went on. But it was not their lives that they were worried about. It was their usefulness and their calling. I think that's that's very clear. 
not because of the success, but because of the difficulties. Difficulties only inspired these men to persevere. You get to verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So they kept preaching either way. So far, all the stories end the same way. They continued to preach the gospel. We're going to see that so many times. They continued to preach the gospel. There couldn't be a better sign-off with each episode. They continued. Is that typical of us? COVID, wiping out churches all over the land. Does this one continue to preach the word with boldness? I hope so. Do they continue to volunteer so that children get to hear the word of God with boldness? I hope so. Uh, problems will come and go. And it's, it's not an if, it's a when. Why did they stay during difficulty but run after an attempt on their lives? Again, I got a little ahead of myself, ahead of my notes rather. A question best answered after another question. The better question is, what is the best interest of the gospel in which I am called to serve? And if you ask that question, the answer will be, you stay until you're almost dead. <laughs> you volunteer until you drop dead. <clears throat> what happens if you spend your whole life telling kids or adults about Jesus and then you die? I don't even know how to describe the crown that the book promises you for serving for the business for which Christ died and God was happy to sacrifice his son for. There's no way you can lose. Their greatest fear was not dying, but being unfaithful. All right, let's wrap this up. So what about Wake Chapel? Are we typical as defined by the book of Acts? Is our strategy typical? Are we walking through open doors as we see them? It'll take us gathering together and evaluating those doors. Hey, this one's wide open. This one looks like it's closing. This one looks like there's a crack and it's starting to open. Missionaries are trained on this. Why aren't we trained on this sort of thing? We should. We should evaluate. And then we should open the door and walk through it. How about our resolve? Because the point about the city, that is what it is. Some will believe and some won't. But as far as the church, how's our resolve in the face of difficulty? Is that typical of the book of Acts? What if it becomes more difficult? What if all those games that felt like home games in the Bible belt where you just open the doors and people come in, what if, what if that doesn't work anymore? What if we have to work real hard? What if there's fewer and fewer and fewer of us? Will we still come? Will we still preach? Will we still teach? Will we still learn? Will we still educate our children? That's, that's, that's the craziness of it, as if the Bible doesn't teach what happens when one generation grows up and knows not the God of their fathers. But while we're trying to do exactly what Ecclesiastes said is absolute foolishness by stacking up things for ourselves in this life, that generation gets neglected. It's basically on them because we've got better th stuff to do sometimes. It's true. As far as our volunteers, and I've talked about this, and if it wasn't something pressing right here and now, 
I don't think it would ever made it into the message, but that's, that's kind of the task of taking what was, that's this book. Y'all like it when I say that, don't you? Wasness. We've got to see how it fits into the isness. And then later it'll help us in the to be-ness. Somebody added that not long ago. I'd never heard that before. But wasness, isness, to be-ness. Do we care about the to be-ness? Then we care about the wasness, but we've got to answer how that was fits in the is right now, right? During COVID, and this is just my, my humble observation, you, you, you evaluate it, see what you think. There's a reason why we've almost forgotten two years of our lives, because it was crazy town, perpetually. But what we did was we cleared our calendars like we've never done before. We had our technology, and we talked to one another, and we were able to meet by live stream and Zoom and so forth for the time we couldn't come to this building. But after clearing our calendars... I think we became more allergic to commitment than this culture's ever been allergic to commitment. And this culture is allergic to commitment. Used to be you knew who your grocer was, your insurance salesman, all those people your your folks did business with, right? But when we're moving all over the place, we don't know anybody. There's only one question we want to ask. Who's the cheapest? And that's where we'll go. It doesn't or where's the best quality? But it really doesn't have to do a lot with relationships. Relationships have become shallower. We're, we're connected with more and more people, but we're not as deep with, with anyone. I don't, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I, I think that's the case. So if the whole culture is allergic to commitment, we shouldn't be surprised or shocked that within a church, it's harder to find volunteers to do simple things because we're here, there, and everywhere. And that's a good... We like being here, there, and everywhere. Who who doesn't want that type of thing? And it's not a problem with all those things being bad. I used to sit in pews and listen to everything that competed with the church being demonized as hatched from hell. Do y'all believe that the beach was hatched from hell? I don't. I enjoy the beach. And in about 10 days, I'll be there. For two weeks, like we do every year, and you are gracious and kind enough to afford us the time off to get away from you (laughs) so that I can spend time with my family, right? That's not bad. But if those things, nickel and dime, our commitment to church, that we do have biblical precedent not to forsake, then I don't know that we're as typical as these churches where they looked for open doors and they cleared their calendars for the opportunity to spread the gospel. If we're going to be blessed of God and the Holy Spirit continues to move, we're going to have to be about that. I don't like hearing that Wake Chapel's turning away kids who are coming to Awana or a waiting list for VBS, but I can't do anything about it other than be part of it myself or sit in a room and study so this can get done while someone else is available for that. We can't do it all. My wife can't do it all. My kids can't do it all. You can't do it all. But together we can get it done. And if God keeps bringing us more, then that means it's working, right? So any restaurant with a little bit of line out front says to me that's a good restaurant. 
They're being fed well. So a little bit of a line here as well, too. But from a few weeks ago, let's get to cooking. Because that recipe saves lives. It's not our recipe. It's God Almighty's. So if we have to clear our calendars for an eternal reward, I think that's a good move. We need to be able to say that we are present, involved, and engaged. Those are words maybe you want to write on your refrigerator. Are you present at your church? Are you involved at your church? Are you engaged with your church? I'm not just talking about a building and a list of services. I'm talking about your church family, brothers and sisters in Christ that you will live together with for eternity, that you've joined as part of church membership, all the one another's in the New Testament. We're stuck with each other. Are you involved, engaged, and present with this people group? If you know them well, they'll stand you up. It's better to serve with others than to serve alone. There's nothing like it. No club, no institution in this great land can compete with something like this or even attempt. So if you're present, you're involved, you're engaged. Somebody had said weeks ago, it fits here. Uh, you ever, you ever uh, buy a ticket to a game or something and on the back there's like a drawing um, and they're going to draw names and somebody's going to win something and usually at the bottom it says must be present to win I think that works here the rewards of heaven are, are riding on whether or not we're present in order to, to win right and then if this is the case, I think the prayer for this, it's not often that, that, that I say, hey, here's, here's, here's what we pray about. This is what you take home. But we're going to start praying earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and see if we can't fix some of these things. Awana and VBS are not the only things with waiting lists. There was a staff meeting about two weeks ago where we discussed whether or not we can keep doing one of the children's classes that's happening right now during the worship service because we lack a rotation or two to do it on an annual basis. Now, if that just breaks your heart, at the mighty Wake Chapel who, who, who rises to every occasion, that's what we need to pray for. We don't need to pray for a new building. That's the easy button. God's given us the money for that new building. It's not in the church's accounts. It's in yours. And he'll give it. He gave it to you and you'll give it to... That's, that, I really don't think that's a big deal. I think in time, we'll have it. What I'm worried about is not having enough people who are committed at the right depth in order to make this church what it needs to be to attach the name of our risen Lord to it and not be embarrassed. That's what we need. Pray for laborers. The field is white unto harvest, but the laborers are few... Even Jesus said that. This shouldn't shock any of us. It doesn't shock me. But the dumbest thing we could do is just not talk about it because it's embarrassing. And we might have to say, we need more from you. We're not asking for your money. You're very generous. We're asking for your time. And I used to be in a place where people had less money and more time. Now I'm in a place where people have less time and more money. So what do we do about it? Pray about it. 
Pray to the Lord of the harvest. He'll fix it. And then he gets the glory. If we fixed all our problems, we'd be a strutting church headed for the woodshed or a fall because that's pride. We don't want that. We want to be humble. Humble ourselves in the sight of God. He'll lift us up. Not for our glory, but for his. I've said enough. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for our problems. As crazy as it sounds to say it, Lord, we thank you for a shortage in volunteers if it's necessary for us to evaluate what we're doing and why. Lord, we're thankful for the struggle of a building campaign if, if it's necessary just to frame in our minds what it is we're doing and why. Lord, these men that we're reading about, these heroes, were no different than us. They're, they're sinful just like us. They struggled just like us. But Lord, they determined at some point to focus on the gospel and everything else takes a back seat. Lord, may we not be the type of church that would, would ruin families and, and, and burn out people to make a name for ourselves. Lord, we'll answer for that. That's wrong. It always is. But Lord, if we could be so privileged to be in on what you're doing and to be perceptive enough to see where you're moving and just to follow where you're already at, would you be so pleased as to let us see with our eyes the conversion of children, the conversion of adults, to see the few out of the world that do believe and let you handle those that don't. Thank you so much for Wake Chapel, a church that I think I can speak for the whole group by saying is a blessing from heaven. Lord, thank you for this church and its people. Use us how you see fit. Lord, send us laborers for your glory. In your name, amen.